I will have the horrible war between Russia and Ukraine settled, and we'll do it quickly. The commitment of the United States to our NATO alliance and Article 5 is rock solid. International humanitarian law must be respected. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the second episode of International Crisis Group's newest podcast, Ripple Effect, which is a podcast about the United States' relationship to the world and the countdown to the November 2024 presidential election. My name is Michael Hanna, and I'm the U.S. Program Director here at Crisis Group, and I am again joined by my colleague and co-host, Steve Pomper, our Chief of Policy. Hey, Steve. Hey, Michael. Uh, During our first episode last month, we spoke to Colin Call, who was a senior official until very recently in the Biden Pentagon. For our second episode, we will be crossing the proverbial aisle to focus on the foreign policy debates that are animating the Republican primaries and more broadly that characterize a fairly chaotic moment within the Republican Party. Yeah, and we could uh, hardly have picked a better day for this conversation. Today is Wednesday, the 16th of January. It's just the day after um, what was effectively day one of the primary season. Uh, That's the process by which Republican candidates are competing for delegates who will decide on the party's nominee at the party's nominating convention, which will be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in July. And the three leading presidential candidates for the Republican Party are former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and Trump's former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who was previously also the governor of South Carolina. And the results are in, and Trump won a resounding victory with more than 50% of the vote. Um, The real race was for second place, and there DeSantis edged out Haley uh, for second. He was just about or just a little above 20%, and she was just a little below it. Of particular interest to this conversation, uh, Nikki Haley very much ran on her foreign policy credentials. She pitched herself as a mainstream Republican, trusted foreign policy hand. She pitched Donald Trump as something of a chaos agent uh, in a dangerous world. That was her pitch, uh, but I don't think it worked very well, and it puts a fine point on the question, is there a non-Trump vision for U.S. foreign policy that can prevail in today's Republican Party? And to help us think that through, we're really pleased to have with us Dr. Corey Shockey, who is a senior fellow and the director of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She's had other important scholarly positions, and she also has had a number of senior positions in the U.S. government, uh, most recently in the Bush administration, where she was both the planning directorate at the National Security Council and at the State Department. She's also worked on presidential campaigns. She was an advisor to the McCain-Palin presidential campaign in 2008. Uh, Despite her Republican bona fides, however, she also joined a letter with 130 other national security officials, Republican national security officials in 2020, finding that then President Trump was unfit for another term in office, and she supported Joe Biden in that election. Corey, welcome to the show. We're really delighted you could be here to help us make sense of this all. Thank you, my friends. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, You recently made the case in Foreign Affairs for what you called um, conservative internationalism, and that's a vision for a very robust U.S. role 
in the world, underwritten by a commitment to free trade, a big defense spending, which would be offset by cuts to entitlements like Social Security, fealty to alliances, and democracy promotion. In spirit, if not in every particular, that sounds a lot like the type of foreign policy one might expect from a President Haley, if there were to be a President Haley. And yet we see what just happened to candidate Haley in Iowa. So I'm wondering, what does that tell you about the political viability of this vision? So I don't think it actually tells us much about the political viability of that position for two reasons. One is that foreign policy tends not to figure prominently in American choices of our presidents. And second, because uh, the Iowa caucus, while firing a very important shot across the bow about the viability of anyone other than Donald Trump getting the Republican nomination for presidency, Nils Gilman um, from the Bergroen Institute did the math for us all on Twitter. There are 718,901 registered Republicans in Iowa. Uh, President Trump got 56,260 votes yesterday. That's less than 8% of the Republicans in the state of Iowa. I also think it's important that Nils points out that the way to think about our disgraced former president as a presidential candidate in 2024 is to think of him as the GOP incumbent. And so the fact that a former Republican president got only 50% of the primary votes in a very conservative state is actually not an overwhelmingly positive showing, right? Imagine if President Biden only got 50% of the Democratic Party's nominating caucuses. Um, so I, I don't think uh, the Iowa caucuses, especially not under the conditions they were held during a big snow blizzard last night, are determinative of who will be the Republican candidate. Although I take your point that um, President Trump, our disgraced former President Trump, looks quite formidable. Foreign policy typically doesn't weigh much on American minds as they choose their president. And I think in 2024, it looks to me like the economy is playing prominently and cultural issues are playing prominently to the extent that foreign policy is looms consequentially in the election. I think it's actually not going to be in the primary. It will be in the general election where President Biden's policies on Ukraine and the war in Gaza will be, I think, problematic for him. The first in the case of drawing independence, and the second in the case of democratic turnout. Um, I'm skeptical even that people who say foreign policy matters to them are actually paying attention to the specific positions of candidates and much more to the world feels dangerous right now 
who do I trust to navigate it? Rather than parsing carefully that, for example, Governor Haley gave an interview on January 15th saying that that Palestinians living in Gaza shouldn't be able to return to Gaza. Just to jump in, I take your point that there is often not a fine focus on very specific issues of foreign policy, that they don't play a determinative role in voters' uh, preferences and selections. I do wonder if there is a general frustration with the trajectory of of foreign policy in recent decades. Uh, I think we've seen frustration about uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the uh, frustrations with the, the outcomes of globalization, the financial crisis. So I wonder, is that resonant? I do think it is having an effect, and not just among Republicans. I think we are seeing the long shadow of the Iraq War, where the last three presidential administrations in the United States have been trying desperately to be less involved in the Middle East, right? President Obama shutting down the war in Iraq, President Biden shutting down the war in Afghanistan, President Trump wanting to do both of those things and not being managerially competent enough to do so. And one interesting foreign policy question for 2024 will be, now that we see what a Middle East with a less involved United States looks like, do Americans prefer that to one in which we make a marginal contribution to helping our friends and stabilizing regional security. So it's going to be an interesting test. As with most things in American politics, it's almost impossible to tell other than the blunt forced instrument of elections. What people say in advance of what they vote for is very often not conclusive. But, Michael, I do think you're right that there is an overwhelming sense of weariness that for the last 25 years, 23 years, it certainly felt like a lot of responsibility has fallen on American shoulders. There's frustration. Allies aren't doing more. There's frustration. Allies aren't doing what we want them to do. There's anxiety about the diminishing margin of superiority of American military forces and questionable congressional commitment to expanding that margin of superiority, uh, the incapacity of Congress to pass a budget on time, and the damage that that's doing to people's sense of uh, our ability to make international commitments. So I do think there are a lot of balls in the air and a lot of concerns about whether the U.S. is too involved in the rest of the world, not involved enough, what are we doing wrong, or is this just a world in which the United States should hunker down and care less about what happens elsewhere? I do think those are quite live issues and, in American voters' minds. You know, and I, and I agree with your point. This isn't simply a Republican phenomenon. I think it's right that there is a broad 
reappraisal that's also happening with uh, Democrat within the Democratic Party. You know, President Trump pulled off something of a bold move in when he was running for president the first time in 20, 2015, 2016, by calling a spade a spade with respect to the Iraq war and setting himself apart from the Republican field. And I guess the question is, if you were to have an opportunity to sit down with a Republican voter who was drawn to Trump for that reason, they trust him to tell hard truths and not to cling to a a set of past principles that doesn't seem to be working. And you're trying to convince them that his way is not the right way, that the idea of the United States playing a very active role in the world, consistent with traditional Republican and traditional Democratic foreign policies, that that's the way to go. How would you make that pitch? Yeah, so I do make this pitch at my dad's Rotary Club and at uh, high school fundraisers in my hometown. And it reinforces a couple of things for me. One, as my AEI colleague Fred Kagan likes to say, nobody wants to die for the liberal international order. Abstract concepts don't really resonate with American voters, right? We're practical people. Um, And so uh, making systemic arguments in abstract terms, I think, is part of how I and my fellow conservatives lost this argument in the Republican Party. But there are two lines of argument that I find do persuade even uh, Trump-supporting Republican voters. And one is that if you don't want to shape the international order, somebody else is going to, and that somebody else is going to be China. So if you are comfortable with surveillance states, with strong states doing as they please and weak states suffering what they must, with the United States being disadvantaged in international markets and unable to import the things we need for American businesses to function, then that's the international order you will have if we don't assertively try and shape the international order. That does get people's attention because the choices that the Chinese government has made in about the last five or ten years really do worry Americans. You can see it in the polling about whether China is an enemy of the United States. Something like 75% of Americans agree with that proposition. So one way to get through about and involved America advancing our domestic principles internationally is to say, if we don't work at that, China is going to succeed at setting rules that will be deeply disadvantageous to our security and our prosperity. And the second line of argument that I find gets traction is to say that sustaining an international order that is beneficial to the United States is a lot less costly than having to recreate it. And we are seeing that in the war in Ukraine right now. Uh, If we had been willing to bring Ukraine into the NATO alliance, I think it much less likely Russia would have dared attack them. And we would have been able to share to a much greater extent the cost 
of defending Ukraine with our NATO allies, now that Ukraine is at war, our European allies are bearing the largest burden of aid to Ukraine, not just financial aid to Ukraine, but also taking in millions of Ukrainian refugees, giving them homes, jobs, and schools. But once it gets to warfare, the United States is the weapons supplier to most of our friends and allies. And so we are bearing the brunt of weapons provision. So I, I do think those two arguments can get through to people who aren't natural, you know, who don't naturally align with the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s, which is where the principle of conservatism that I advocate in the foreign affairs article you nicely mentioned, um, that's almost a straight take out of the Eisenhower administration. So I will take your point that there's a long way to go um, and, and the caucuses are not necessarily determinative of where this primary fight ends up. Um, but just to circle back to, to Donald Trump, who clearly does look like the, the front runner at this point, to be unseated at this point would be quite, quite a shock and a surprise. Um, and so thinking about what a second term might look like if he were to win a general election, Traditional foreign policy hands were often shocked by the way Trump conducted himself during his term, the way he treated allies, his contempt for traditional values, disregard for state secrets. And we consistently hear a lot of concern, a lot of worry about what a round two might look like with a perhaps better, better prepared, less constrained, more vengeful Donald Trump. Do you think those fears, those kinds of concerns and worries are justified? And what kind of risks do you think a, a, a second Trump administration would pose? I absolutely think those fears and concerns are justified, and I share them. I'm profoundly grateful that the guardrails of American democracy held through the four years of Donald Trump's term. I'm especially pleased and proud of the American judicial system, which upheld the rule of law in the face of enormous threat. And the aggressiveness of American journalism, which was undeterred by threats from the White House and attempts to penalize coverage of the administration. So, so it could have been much worse. And the second term will be much worse, I think, for a few reasons. A first Trump term was malevolence tempered by incompetence, as Ben Wittes liked to say. And in a second term, you won't have Jim Mattis's and John Kelly's and Nikki Haley's going into a Trump administration you will have people who want to achieve the president's most reckless and destructive initiatives. So the people will be more reckless. Either Congress will buckle to the president's electoral standing and confirm those people for senior positions, or the president will appoint them in an acting function as he did at the end of his presidential term. And 
I also am myself quite worried about fledgling efforts in the first term to separate the rank and file of the American military from their leadership, denigrating the generals and pardoning people convicted by courts martial in order to create a military more responsive to uh, the president's direction and less bound by the uniform code of military justice and the good order and discipline that have characterized the American military and made them such a bulwark of democracy. Corey, what do you worry that you do with the military? <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't even a third of the way through my worries. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, you can park that question, but I'm curious. What do you worry that he would do with that military? Is the worry that they would be deployed for domestic purposes? or Yes. I mean, the president was eager to invoke the Insurrection Act during the social justice protests in 2020. And it was the good work of Secretary Esper going public with his concerns about that that stayed the president's hand. And so, I'm sorry, slightly technical point that, that listeners to the podcast might not know, which is the American military is prohibited by law since the 1870s of being used for domestic law enforcement. The only loophole to that, the Posse Comitatus Act, which is what prevents the use of the American military domestically for law enforcement, the only loophole to that is the Insurrection Act. And so the president threatening to invoke the Insurrection Act would, if the military leadership judged it was a lawful order, would see the American military used for domestic political purposes. And that would, needless to say, destroy the relationship that the American people have with our military if it were to come to be. Okay, thank you. I, I mean, I'm sorry I cut off your flow because I'm genuinely very interested to hear you know, your, you know, your full set of views on where you think the risks are. I mean, we are we are a conflict prevention organization, and so obviously one thing that we're particularly focused on is where you think risks will go in terms of conflict. Yeah, I think the prospects of international conflict will increase dramatically. Because, you know, the president told Germany's then defense minister, Ursula von der Leyen, as has been revealed in the last few weeks, that no matter what happened to NATO allies, the United States wasn't going to come to their defense. And given the aggressiveness we are seeing of Russia in Ukraine and the threats they are making to reconstitute the former Soviet Union, our NATO allies are going to be very frightened and the prospects for conflict increase dramatically there. Donald Trump, when president, liked talking tough about the use of military force, but he declined to retaliate against Iran for their attacks on Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. One of the reasons the Abraham Accords between uh, some of the Gulf countries and Israel 
moved forward was because those countries began to doubt whether the United States would be a reliable defender of their people, their territory, and their interests. And I think you will see a lot more of that kind of hedging behavior where countries lose confidence in the reliability of American security guarantees, not just in Europe, but in Asia and throughout the world, and either make compromises detrimental to their and our security because they fear they can't defend themselves or um, are drawn into conflicts and can't sustain their liberty, can't sustain their independence against the threats that come. I think one other thing that's likely to be, and of course, President Trump's comments about immigration suggest so much disrespect and derision for the 54 countries of the continent of Africa and all of our Latin American neighbors that I think those countries would expect no interest or assistance from a Trump second term. And I guess one last point, Steve, is that um, knowing what we know about Donald Trump and how he would govern the United States, if Americans choose to reelect him, we will look like a fundamentally different country to the rest of the world. And I think, in fact, I think we will be a different kind of country than we have been at least in the last 70 or 100 years. Well, if the United States, um, in fact, uh, does not choose Donald Trump and Joe Biden is elected, I wonder how you would view a second Biden term. I, I know you have some disagreements on trade and international economic policy and, and entitlement reform, uh, which you lay out in your foreign affairs essay. But I wonder what, what you would expect from a second Biden term. What are the kinds of things that you would be uh, concerned about if Joe Biden is reelected? Yeah. So let me start by saying that um, if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, I will endorse and vote for President Biden, despite my policy concerns. I like the way Liz Cheney describes it. I have a lot of policy differences with the Biden administration, but you can fix policy differences. Donald Trump is a threat to democracy in America. And that's a, that's a whole different kettle of fish than policy differences. Policy, the main policy problem of the Biden administration is that they have a very ambitious strategy that they are failing to resource. Let's maybe start with trade. You know, America's allies are worried. They see the nature of China's threat, but they don't want to go to war with China, and they don't want an ideological crusade about democracy versus autocracy. What America's friends around the world are pleading for from us is an economic strategy that can help all of us reduce our dependence on China, and in that way, hope to affect Chinese behavior on military and ideological issues. But the Biden administration, because they are fundamentally trade protectionists, cannot provide that economic strategy. 
And that unbalances their national security strategy, putting much more emphasis on the military aspects to deter and constrain Chinese behavior. And we are not buying a military capable of carrying that out. And that tempts our adversaries to test us, as I believe we are beginning to be tested in several theaters, several regions of the world right now, and we are proving inadequate to those needs. So the Biden administration ought, in my judgment, to quickly and dramatically come up with an international economic policy that uses market access in beneficial ways, as American foreign policy traditionally has, and spend a lot more money on ammunition and weapons as fast as we and allies can together produce them before somebody thinks to actually tempt us to have to carry out our strategy. But Corey, what about you know some of the hot button issues that are in the headlines like Gaza and Ukraine? Do you think, for example, the Biden administration's Gaza policy, which is not popular with a big part of his domestic constituency, and is certainly not popular internationally, do you think that's been on the right track? And then on Ukraine, sort of same question. Has he steered the right course with the Ukrainians, given the realities of American domestic politics? No and no. On Ukraine, the president appears not to have a strategy for victory. He just has a strategy for Ukraine not losing. So we're not giving them enough assistance to win, and we're not giving them enough assistance to take the initiative away from Russia. We're just giving them enough assistance to stay in the fight, and we're doing it in a way that is stripping out the weapons cupboards of us and all of our allies. The most important thing I think the president should do differently in our support for Ukraine is remove the policy restrictions on Ukraine using weapons given by us and others to attack Russian territory. Because Russia is being permitted a sanctuary from which to destroy Ukraine. And because we are, in my mind, too much concerned about the potential for escalation or widening of the war, we are requiring Ukraine to treat Russian territory as a sanctuary. And that's an enormous advantage, as we found to our detriment in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so they should give more assistance faster and let Ukraine get some momentum to drive Russia out of Ukrainian territory. Because I don't think any Ukrainian government, Zelensky or anybody else, could remain in power while Ukrainians and Ukrainian territory remained under Russian control, given the war crimes Russia has perpetuated. And on Gaza, I think the president made two, had two mistaken assumptions. And the first was that by wholeheartedly endorsing Israel it would give us influence over Israel's choices about how it retaliated for the terrible terrorist attack 
of October 7th. And the second error of judgment or mistaken assumption, I think, that Biden policy in Gaza is based on is that we can come up with a sustainable solution for what happens after the fighting stops because, you know, over a hundred United Nations aid workers have been killed in the conflict. The UN is not going to want to go in there. Any regional countries are going to look like they're riding to power on Israeli tanks. Israel won't be acceptable to the people of Gaza governing, and the Palestinian Authority neither wants nor likely has the ability to do this. And so I appreciate that the administration is turning every key it can in the lock to try and figure out what comes next, but they ought to have had that earlier on in their thinking about whether and how the United States should engage both with Israel, with the Palestinians, and with countries in the region. Just to push on Ukraine, your prescription is for for more and for more aggressive policy. And of course, the domestic politics uh, here in the United States are such that um, even the more conservative approach that um, the Biden administration has pursued doesn't look to be feasible because of the politics of the Republican caucus in, in the House of Representatives. Well, I don't actually agree with that. I think there are four things going on, and none of them are actually result. Well, let me just say what the four things are. First, I think Republicans have legitimate concerns about Biden policy toward Ukraine, one of which is the one I already stated, which is, you know, why are we not giving Ukraine what they need to win this as opposed to just continue fighting? So there's a strategy question. There's a broader question about the defense industrial base and why are we not buying or able to buy weapons to replenish what we are giving Ukraine? A third legitimate question Republicans are raising is the president hasn't yet ever in the last two years explained to Americans why this is so important, where it fits in our overall strategic interests. We're making a big commitment to Ukraine and the president's not talking about it, not explaining to my mom where this fits compared to China compared to Social Security or anything else. What I noticed when Jim Mattis and I did the surveys for our book, Warriors and Citizens, is that the single most important factor in getting Americans to support international engagement is actually having the President of the United States spend time and political capital talking to Americans about it. The President uh, wants us to make the commitment without doing the political work of persuasion. And I think that really shows on Ukraine policy. And the last thing is, Republicans in the House have a very slim majority. And they control one of two houses of Congress, and they don't control the executive branch. They see how committed the president has been to Ukraine 
And so they are using it to leverage a policy they are concerned about, which is border security. And that's just politics as usual. And it's actually a myth that American politics ever stopped at the water's edge. They have always been intimately connected to other American policies. So, so I don't think it's impossible to get Republicans to support aid to Ukraine. And my team at AEI spends a lot of time. For example, we mapped every American congressional district that benefits from aid to Ukraine because we are providing predominantly military assistance, which means American weapons, which means American jobs. And American spending, 85% of aid to Ukraine is actually spent in the United States. And so we're helping people to understand those things. But I sure wish the president would spend some of his time and effort on it. But Corey, do you really think that there is space for him to persuade Republicans, even in this last year uh, before the election, to come on board with his vision for more assistance to Ukraine? Even if he were to spend a lot of political capital on it, I really wonder whether that's realistic. Yes, I do. I really do. The American public is actually quite easily persuaded on these things, but it does require political effort um, and a willingness to expend political capital by the president. The president hasn't made a single speech to the American public about assistance to Ukraine. The only major speech in which the president has talked about Ukraine was in the context of aid to Israel after the terrorist attack on October 7th. So if I could just ask one last question, we've considered two worlds, one in which Trump wins and one in which Biden wins, and we don't know where it's going to go. But we do know we're in a world where Americans are pretty, pretty divided between two different visions of the country's role in the world. And so in that sense, the United States is just a very different country than I think a lot of elites in some of our allies would like it to be. That has always been the case. I remember a German diplomat telling me after September 11th that he didn't even recognize the United States anymore. Right. So maybe maybe there's always been a flawed vision, or maybe people have this very nostalgic view towards a very, very specific historical moment when things were just a lot different in the world. But they're going to be a lot different still if Donald Trump is elected in uh, the next election. And I guess the question is, do you have any thoughts for traditional partners and allies of the United States for what they should be doing to prepare themselves for that possibility? Oh, that's a really good question that I'm going to have to give some serious thought to and should have thought about by now. So thank you for raising it. I don't think it's particularly helpful for non-Americans to express their anxiety about how Americans will vote, because I think Americans don't pay that much attention to anything beyond uh, the American body politic as they vote. But I do think if I were national security advisor of Britain or Germany or Japan or Mexico, I would be going pretty carefully through everything Donald Trump is saying on the campaign trail because as president, 
from 2017 to 2021, he did try to implement what he had said on the campaign trail. And I would think very carefully about how to prevent any such actions by the United States from being damaging to the security or prosperity of my own country. And I would also think about who can help me if not the United States? How do like-minded countries team up together and try and create a bulwark against American destructiveness to an international order that's in their interests? Thanks very much, Corey. Uh, we really uh, appreciate uh, your coming on the show and, and chatting with us. Yeah, Corey, thanks very much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for the good work that you guys do to help make the world a safer place. We really appreciate it. So, Michael, that was that was a great chat. Um, I really appreciated Corey's candor. Any reflections on the conversation? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I remain struck by the depth of her opposition to Trump, uh, despite some of her policy differences with the Biden administration and um, some of her fears about what a, what a second Trump term uh, term would look like and her reflection that, you know, the United States would be a fundamentally different country if the American electorate chose to reelect uh, Donald Trump as president. Um, I think the thing that I probably disagreed with Corey about uh, was um, her sense that on the continuation of assistance to Ukraine, that, that, that President Biden has a real opportunity to convince critics um, that this was uh, an issue in which uh, opposition remained persuadable. And I'm not really sure of that. Um, with Donald Trump looming and Ukraine assistance becoming part of the electoral campaign, I have my doubts that people are truly persuadable at this point. Yeah, I, I wonder about that too. I'm not sure it's just a messaging issue. I also agree it is really striking. Um, in a world where political leaders, Republican political leaders, really are tending to fall in line uh, with Donald Trump, whatever their personal misgivings are. In the policy community, people uh, are harder sells. Uh, that's clear. And the depth of, of Corey's convictions also came across very clearly. I, I, I basically, fr frankly, agreed with the trepidations about what a second Trump term would look like. I was, frankly, a little bit less worried about Trump 1.0. Uh, than I am about Trump 2.0 in the foreign policy world, just because I think he's had a chance to get his bearings and will now be able to make some of his worst ideas actually happen, whereas he struggled with that in, in the first term. Where, where I maybe part ways, uh, like you, I didn't really necessarily agree that President Biden has all that many levers to pull on Ukraine. I'm not sure sending more powerful weapons or allowing the Ukrainians to strike deeper into, into Russia with, uh, with American arms would necessarily be a good idea. I think the escalatory risks would be significant. There are other policy differences that we might have. Uh, so I'd, I'd suggest that our audience take a look uh, at Crisis Group's work on all of those topics, uh, China, 
uh, Gaza, the war in Ukraine. I sure hope that people will come back for our third episode next month. Please, in the meantime, share comments, likes on the platform of your choice, and uh, we'll look forward to rejoining you uh, in, in February. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Steve. 